His now, the one who protects us all from prattling prognosticators and perfidious pundits. I say, America, stay out the bushes. Look for the Union label. And to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. From my cold, dead hands. I'm concerned that if we don't impeach this president, he will get reelected. It's time for the Alan Nathan Show. Here he is, the longest-running nationally syndicated centrist host in the country, Alan Nathan. Welcome, everyone, to the Alan Nathan Show, where we want the Republicans out of our bedrooms, the Democrats out of our wallets, and both out of our First and Second Amendment rights. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News, sitting in for Alan today while he's out on assignment. And we sit here today a couple of days after the tragic shooting at a Christian school in Nashville, where a transsexual shooter entered the school with a, a couple of assault rifles, opened fire, killed three of the teachers and three children who were under 10 years of age, and was then taken down in an astonish, astonishingly swift and effective response by the Nashville Police Department. There are videos that the police department has released. You can see online uh, body cam videos from the officers that were responding, so you can follow them as they make their way into the school. They discover the horror of the victims. They keep going uh, unfazed, knowing that lives are still on the line, and they finally confront and quickly put down the shooter when they got there. So, I mean, watching this is chilling and also tells you the heroism of the people who would do something like this. As many observers pointed out, it's a stark contrast to the disaster in Uvalde, where there was a school shooting in Texas and the local police massed in gigantic numbers and you had federal agents show up and everybody, and they just kind of stood there and nobody went in. And to this day, you know, months, I think a year now after the Uvalde shooting, they're still making excuses. There was just a story coincidentally uh, last week about the latest report that the Uvalde police put out to clear themselves of wrongdoing. And they said, uh, gee, we couldn't go in there even though we had the guy outnumbered 300 to one because he had an assault rifle and, and those just like instantly kill you. They're like the Death Star. They just blow the world away. So we couldn't go in there. And here you had this week later, this stunning refutation of that because you had this heavily armed shooter and these police officers went in there fearlessly and just confronted and immediately took them down. The total response time from the first shots being fired to the police moving in and neutralizing the shooter was about 15 minutes, which is pretty amazing, you know, on the clock, hats off to the National Police Department. But it, uh, it also is a, uh, it's a reminder of the old saying that we always hear during gun control debates, that when seconds count, the minutes, the police are just minutes away. I mean, 15 minutes is a long time for a, an armed lunatic or an armed lunatic with anything, mind you. You get school massacres in other countries. They don't get a lot of uh, media attention if they don't involve guns. But you get school massacres in other countries uh, quite frequently in China. And in China, they usually happen with knives and machetes, and they still will kill. You know, it's not hard to kill a dozen children trapped in a classroom with a machete if you have 15 minutes to do it. Hate to be so blunt, but, you know, it's, the quickness of the response here is impressive, but still, that's the best you could hope for. 15 minutes, that's amazing. And yet, you know, that's not enough time to save the people that were killed. And I'm sure all of the responding officers probably feel that way. I'm sure if you were to talk to any of them right now, the, to a man and a woman, every one of them would say, I wish we were faster. I wish we could have gotten there quicker. I, I just wish we'd been able to take this person down more swiftly. I mean, they shouldn't be beating themselves up. They did an amazing job. But it really is true that when there is trouble, when something like this happens, the police can't really save you. They, they can avenge you. 
And, you know, hopefully they can get there in time to keep the loss of life from escalating further, as was the case with this shooting. But they're not going to be there in two seconds. They can't just magically appear and protect you. It is something of a responsibility of all of, of citizens, of people, to protect themselves, especially in a country as huge as the United States of America is. We cover a gigantic land area. We have an immense population. We have some of that population concentrated in densely packed cities, and others live in rural areas that cover a great deal of ground. And it's very hard for the police to get to any given point in those areas to provide assistance. So you are kind of up to yourself to make some provisions for your family family's defense. And you can see that the elites in this country know that perfectly well, because when they're busy trying to exploit something like this, and God knows they are, as soon as this happened, the gun control crowd came swinging out of the woodwork, screaming that there need to be more gun control laws. Uh, like what? I mean, this person, the shooter in uh, the case in Nashville, uh, was a mentally unwell individual who had a stockpile of seven guns that she wasn't supposed to have. And her parents knew that she had at least one gun and they didn't tell the police. So, I mean, what law are you going to pass here? Are you going to line up the, uh, the psychics from Minority Report? There's no twiddle to gun control laws. There's no little tweak. There's no one more law to toss on the pile of thousands. And there are thousands of gun control laws. To hear the dishonest advocates of gun control talk, you would think there weren't any. One of their favorite talking points is that it's supposedly easier to buy a car than a gun. That's nonsense, absolute nonsense. But the president of the United States uh, said it just yesterday. So, I mean, that, that's a ridiculous talking point. So they, they have to act as if there are no laws at all. But in fact, there are thousands of them. And throwing one more law on the pile is not going to solve problems like this. It's not going to make that big of a difference. What they're afraid to usually come right out and say is that the only thing that could conceivably make a difference is outright confiscation. If we completely outlawed firearms and confiscated all of them, then maybe now you might be able to say, well, crazy this person might be, and they might still attack a school, but they wouldn't have a gun, and they wouldn't be able to do as much damage. I mean, at least you have the beginnings of a logical argument there, but that requires doing something that would be, A, deeply offensive to American constitutional rights, and B, impossible in a practical sense. Do you know if you wanted to confiscate all of the guns in the United States that are in private hands, you would need every employee of the federal government, and that's a lot of people. The federal payroll is titanic. You would need every one of them to abandon whatever they're doing and go out and confiscate something like 50 guns apiece if you wanted to take them all out of private hands. That's how many there are, you know, just a titanic number of guns and well that it should be because we have a constitutional right to bear arms. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. If your neighbor has 20 guns in their house and they're peaceable law-abiding people, who cares? You'll never even know they have 20 guns in their house. It matters what people do with them. It matters who gets them, who uses them and, and how we respond to those situations. So, I mean, the, making this a gun control uh, case is very shaky here. It's just really hard to make an argument that any given law that anybody is opportunistically calling for, it would have made a big difference. But notice that the people who are opportunistically calling for those gun laws have heavily armed security themselves. I mean, they are trying to make the point to you that they need to be protected by guns, but you don't. You shouldn't have one. You, you shouldn't be able to defend yourself. You should be tightly restricted if you are even allowed to have a gun at all. Maybe there should be limits on how much ammunition you can buy and how much time you can spend at the range. They have all kinds of ideas. But they themselves, the political elite, they have heavily armed security at all times. 
just like they think you shouldn't have a wall on the border to protect your security, but they have walls. <laughs> nobody's allowed to get past their walls. Boy, howdy. You, you don't get to go into their property and be a refugee, and, and you don't hear them saying that nobody's illegal if you trespass on their land. You, you get booted out. Or look at what happened in the Capitol on January 6th. I mean, quite a clear message was sent from that day to this. D.C. is a crime-infested hellhole where the remarkably dangerous and incompetent people that run that city have essentially legalized crime. They've stopped prosecuting almost everything short of the most violent murders. And that means every criminal in D.C. knows that they can do whatever they want and there's very little chance that they're going to be arrested or hassled by the police. But you take one step onto the sacred grounds of the elite. You take one step into the political fortress of Capitol Hill and you're going away forever. You're, you don't have due process anymore. You might as well be in China if you, if you offend their property rights, if you impose yourself upon them. So time and again, over these last few years, we've gotten this increasingly hard to ignore message that there are different rules for the creme de la creme, for the top dog people, and they get things, they get privileges that you don't get. And armed security is one of them. You're, you're on your own, but they're protected. Their kids go to private schools. Those schools have security. They're fine. You people are the ones that have to be kept in perpetual jeopardy to please their political fetishes. And I'm frankly surprised the American people aren't more tired of it. I think a lot of them are, but you just don't get the sense of simmering rage that we really ought to be feeling right now. Now, if one thing is going to make people angry, it would be the spin from the media that we've gotten over the past couple of days since this shooting occurred. It has been absolutely jaw-dropping to watch the press twist this story so that the shooter is the victim. The, the murderer, the person who went in there and killed three little kids and three adults, that that person is, uh, I don't even want to say the name. You know, if you already know her name, good for you. But I, I don't want to even say the name of these people and dignify them. The shooter is the victim here. And the, the message is being sent in much of the media coverage that if only people stopped passing laws that displease transsexuals, if they only stopped resisting the transsexual agenda, then these shootings wouldn't happen. It's, it's your fault. You know, they, a lot of media coverage over the last couple of days led with observations about how this happened X number of days since a law was passed preventing drag shows for little kids in schools, as if that's the problem here. You know, you people resisting the trans agenda and you people not wanting your kids to be indoctrinated, you're the problem. This is your fault. You might as well have pulled the trigger because you inspired this despicable act of mass violence. That, my friends, is the core operating principle of terrorism. That's how political terrorism works. The basic idea is that the victims are responsible for the violence because they resisted the righteous demands of the aggressors. That's how terrorism functions. And if you don't want to see more of it, you shouldn't sit still for it here either. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News. We'll be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. This message is provided by Beringer Engelheim. Idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF, is one of the more common forms of progressive fibrosing interstitial lung diseases with symptoms including breathlessness during activity, a dry and persistent cough, chest discomfort, fatigue, and weakness. 
There are more than 200 lung disorders that can lead to pulmonary fibrosis, an irreversible scarring of lungs that can negatively impact lung function, quality of life, and may become life-threatening. While approved treatments for people living with these diseases can help slow disease progression, new therapies are needed to help potentially stop progression. Fortunately, there is new research underway to assess the safety and efficacy of an investigational treatment in patients with IPF and other progressive ILDs. This is part of Beringer Ingelheim's Phase 3 Global Global Fibronir program. To learn more about Fibronir and eligibility requirements, visit fibronir-ipf.longboat.com and fibronir-ild.longboat.com. This is sponsored by IBM. Job seekers, students, and career changers want to pursue roles in science, technology, engineering, and math, but aren't familiar with career options. At the same time, online training and digital credentials are emerging as a recognized pathway to opportunity. Misconceptions about the cost of training and what's required are often roadblocks to success. To tackle this and bring STEM education closer to underrepresented communities, IBM SkillsBuild is announcing 45 new educational partners. IBM SkillsBuild is a free education program focused on underrepresented communities in tech, helping all develop valuable new skills and access to career opportunities. Justina Nixon St. Till, IBM Chief Impact Officer. Technology training can have a transformational effect on a person's life. IBM is committed to raising awareness of the many roles that exist across industries in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. IBM Skills Build continues to grow with new partners around the world, working together to skill 30 million people by 2030. For more, skillsbuild.org. Dear John, I was hoping it wouldn't come to this, but you've left me no choice. I'm leaving. Uncontrolled high blood pressure is really serious, and lately you seem to really not care. I've been there for you since day one, and I know you think I'm going to keep ticking. But no, my friend, I can quit whenever I want. Why can't we get back to the good times when we were more active and ate more healthy foods and you checked on me every once in a while? Is that too much to ask? I don't want to leave, but unless you stop ignoring me, what else am I supposed to do? Remember, when I quit, you quit. Sincerely, your heart. Listen to your heart and don't let it quit on you. Doing the minimum to control your high blood pressure isn't doing enough. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get your blood pressure to a healthy range before it's too late. For help keeping yours at a healthy range, text PRESSURE to 97779. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. The mission of Paralyzed Veterans of America is clear. Accessibility. Veterans who have served and sacrificed the best of themselves deserve access to the best our country has to offer. Access to meaningful employment. Access to the veterans' benefits they've earned. Accessible homes and vehicles. And access to every part of their communities. With PVA staff working inside VA hospitals, no other veterans' organization has provided more real-time Ongoing support for paralyzed veterans and their families. PVA is proud to serve veterans across all branches, all generations, and all conflicts. Our nation's heroes fought for your independence. Join PVA in fighting for theirs at pva.org.
Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News. You can find my writing at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. An important battle is playing out in Utah that may have ramifications for workers around the country, a conflict between unions and between people who want right-to-work laws and the right-to-work outside of being in a union. The Biden administration is involved, naturally enough, on the side of the unions, but there are some interesting policies at play here. And I think a, a fundamental disagreement is being played out over the nature of work and over who should have say over the terms of how people are employed, how they're compensated, and what jobs should even be available to them. So well worth keeping an eye on. Here with us to talk about it is Austin Bannon, Senior Policy Analyst at Americans for Prosperity. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show. Thanks for having me. So here we have the Biden administration on the side of the unions, and they are pushing for rules that would basically make it much more difficult to work outside of a union. And they say that this is necessary because only through collective bargaining and union leadership can workers get the kind of pay and benefits that they need. And the counter argument is that we have policies on the table that will provide those kind of benefits protections for people who aren't even in unions. And the unions clearly don't like that idea because it kind of reduces their importance, doesn't it? That's right. Uh, yeah, there's there's a there's a big battle underplay as, as you noted. Uh, it's become very partisan in terms of uh, some believing that the natural state of things is everyone should be working in a union and that should be sort of the central um, policy governing what a workplace looks like. And then on the other side, uh, there's an opportunity for flexibility at traditional workplaces. And then uh, related to what's happening in Utah to really empower the people who are self-employed who really cherish the flexibility of being their own boss and trying to remove the barriers that that prevent it from being an even better career path. And I think about half the states now have right-to-work laws in some form or another, and there's a big pushback now to get rid of them. They're starting to knock down right-to-work. They just did it in Michigan, I believe, and there are campaigns afoot to knock down other right-to-work laws. And yet, this is one of the, the best established facts of, of economic analysis in America, that nothing boosts the, the productivity, the wealth of the state more than having a right-to-work law. Nothing knocks your state down faster than getting rid of right-to-work and giving unions power over the labor market. Yeah, it's and it's and it's such a simple policy. Um, today, you can form a union at, at most workplaces if there's majority support, but not everybody supports uh, the, what the union does, their representation, whether it's their political nature or what they're doing at the workplace. And right to work simply says you don't have to put part of your hard-earned paycheck towards a union you don't support. And really, that seems, uh, if anything, to be a, a very acceptable status quo. Uh, people who are in union families uh, with with strong support. Um, favor right-to-work laws because they know it's hard to hold unions accountable. A lot of times they go into a workplace where that same union has been established for a long period of time. Nobody at that workplace ever voted for that union to be there. Uh, So at least as an individual, you have a chance to to use your voice and dedicate your money towards uh, your family rather than the union. Well, that's the problem. The the heart of this is compulsion. When you're talking about unions, to some extent, organized labor is an extension of the right to organize that we all have in the Constitution. So if people want to get together and collectively bargain or form a union to do so, then fine, you know, that's that's their prerogative. But what always happens is that you see these legal environments being created that make it mandatory to belong to a union or impossible to oppose them. The, The scales have to be weighted in such a way that the unions are competitive with cheap 
for labor because non-unionized labor is generally much cheaper. And everybody winds up putting their thumbs on the scale to make it so that you have to pay the union even if you don't belong to it. That's a common practice in union-controlled states. Or you have to bid at union-scale wages even though that's not what you pay your people. All these things are done to coercively make it impossible to undercut the unions because they can't really compete otherwise. And that's where I think this PRO Act we're talking about in Utah, that's the, the heart of this argument is the compulsive nature of it. That's right. That's right. And what and what's happened in Utah, and, and I'm very hopeful that we can have happen in other states, and, and ultimately uh, that leaders that the and Congress would look for is there's a, an embracing, uh, on, and it, it was actually bipartisan that this is now law. There were only two uh, members in, in the legislature that voted against this, um, despite the fact that there's a lot of disagreement uh, around unions and who should be an independent contractor. But Utah has opened up a pathway, I think, that could make uh, everyone in, in America a lot better off. There's over 73 million freelancers across the United States. This is people who either work full-time or, or do part-time gigs to earn extra income. Maybe they're an entrepreneur starting a new business. In Utah, rather than trying to steer everyone towards traditional employment, where there's a big movement to kind of bring people into the union movement, instead, you're obviously, you bargain for yourself as an independent contractor, but these individuals uh, they don't have access necessarily to the same type of health care or other benefits that you might acquire through a business. And now Utah has created a new law where you can actually create portable benefits for yourself. They've legalized the process of creating group and other types of, of insurance plans, also for unemployment insurance and workers' compensation. A lot of new products can be created, and you don't have to be a traditional employee or a business to offer this to you, and you're not forced to do it. You don't have to take a pay cut to get a benefit you're not looking for because a lot of people want the flexibility of the contracting. They can actually earn more income than you could under a union or at a traditional workplace. And if their spouse has health care or they already have something that they are satisfied with, you're not going to lose part of your pay for some sort of forced benefit mandate. So it's really just an open process. Um, you know, and this, this is kind of a trend that everyone in America has wanted. After the pandemic, uh, there were a lot of government shutdowns, things that disrupted people's lives. They were looking for more flexibility to, to earn an income and, and, and have a career where their skills were used. And this is a great path that runs counter to what ProAct supporters are looking for. I think you said the magic word there, gig. The gig economy has been a, a topic of much discussion. A lot of people don't like it and say that it's hurting workers because now traditional employment, uh, all of its benefits are gone. You don't have the security. You don't have the benefits. But it looks like after the pandemic, there might not really be a, a going back here. The possibility of non-traditional work arrangements was greatly increased when people were told to work from home and when work from home came to stay, where traditional employment definitely took a, a bit of a hit there. And to this day, there are people that went home during the pandemic that are never going back to the office. And that clearly opens up opportunities for these non-traditional work arrangements. And the unions clearly don't like that because they rely very heavily on that traditional model for their influence and funding. Yeah. And the type of people that do this, I mean, it's across all industries. There's, there's doctors and lawyers, there's yoga instructors, there's, there's people in journalism. It's, it's really every career. It's, it's drivers. Um, and this is a, a new voice, as you said, that um, because of the pandemic, um, they wanted more flexibility. But think about a working mother. She doesn't want to end her career, but she, but she doesn't have the flexibility with children to go back to a traditional workplace. Now they can use their skill set. Uh, somebody who has a disability that can't do traditional jobs uh, or somebody that just happens to, to specialize and, and in particular businesses don't need that skill set all the time. They only need it occasionally, but you can piece together 
uh, a very successful career working with a lot of different clients. So it's uh, certainly an answer for the 21st century. And we would love to, you know, take what, what Utah has done, again, because government is the one who created the barriers to accessing healthcare for independent contractors um, and puts this on a more equal footing where, where they're self-employed. They should be able to pursue things just like other businesses do. Are we settling in for maybe a bit of trench warfare here on right to work? It seemed like right to work was spreading rapidly. Then the pushback hit. It started to stall out. Now we're talking about battleground states like Utah having these legislative fights. Uh, is right to work going to stall out in the trenches for a while here, or do you think it's going to ultimately move forward again? I hope not. It's become a partisan issue, but the American public says yes, please, the right to work. And state results in terms of the economy certainly say it's a great policy and and. We're hopeful that it's, uh, it's only in a few places that, that we see such a threat. Austin Bannon, Senior Policy Analyst at Americans for Prosperity. Thanks for joining us. I'm John Hayward, your guest host today. We will be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. One of the biggest challenges companies face today is employee retention. Following the pandemic and the great resignation, today's job hunters are looking for greater satisfaction in their work experience. If employees feel like their time is being wasted, they're more likely to leave. One frustration that employees mention is working with multiple disconnected HR and IT systems that slow down productivity. According to the open directory platform provider JumpCloud, one solution is IT unification. When HR and IT work together, two distinct processes become one consistent experience, which saves time and money and keeps employees happier. JumpCloud principal strategist Chase Doling. JumpCloud ensures that your HR and IT tools work together for seamless integrations and built-in automation capabilities. We offer pre-built integrations with the leading HRS solutions, which increase productivity across the organization, and this drastically improves the user experience. To learn more, visit jumpcloud.com. Spring is in the air, and now's the time to spring forward with a delicious breakfast from Burger King, an all-natural Simply Orange juice. Begin your day with a sausage, egg, and cheese croissant sandwich with sizzling sausage, fluffy eggs, and melted American cheese on a toasted croissant. Or a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit on a warm buttermilk biscuit. And make it a meal. All Burger King breakfast sandwiches go great with crispy hash browns. And pair perfectly with a Simply Orange juice with no added sugar. Never sweetened, never concentrated, and never frozen. Simply Orange goes perfectly with breakfast at Burger King and is rich in vitamin C. And now through March 31st on the BK app, Royal Perks members get a free single croissant sandwich with any Simply Orange juice purchase. Use code BREAKFAST to redeem. Get a jump on spring with breakfast at Burger King. Because you rule. At participating U.S. Burger King restaurants, Royal Perks account required. Restrictions apply. See offer terms for details. Not valid on delivery orders. Sponsored by Coca-Cola. Steven. Who said that? Me, down here. Ugh, what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. The forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Climb puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! 
What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. You know that feeling? Like every door is closing and you just can't see a way out? Being unemployed, underemployed, or just out of school feels a lot like that. But when you find the right tools, suddenly everything just clicks. Getting on that path may be easier than you think. A good place to start? Go to findsomethingnew.org. At findsomethingnew.org, you have access to resources that help develop new skills. Skills that will position you for careers in today's growing industries. From healthcare and manufacturing to cybersecurity and alternative energy. Plus, you can take advantage of online courses, certification programs, apprenticeships, and more. So you can take yourself from unemployed and uncertain to empowered and prepared for what's next. Find your path to a new career today. Visit findsomethingnew.org. A message from the Ad Council. I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when it happened. There was a sudden jolt and our submarine crashed on the seafloor. We were in total darkness. That's Dr. Dejana Figueroa, a marine biologist and STEM teacher, talking about a deep sea dive she'll never forget. It's funny, when I was a kid, I was afraid of the ocean. And there I was, two miles below the surface. But as a scientist, you prepare for that. Using our training and a little creativity, we fixed the sub and finished our experiments. The dive was just too important. Every dive gives us glimpses at things few people ever get to see. Blowing creatures, fiery undersea volcanoes, When we got back to the surface, I kissed the ground and called my mom, of course. But you know what? I wouldn't trade that dive for anything. Dr. Figueroa uses her passion for STEM to discover new things and make the world a better place. She can STEM. So can you. Check out She Can STEM for more stories and inspiration. A message from the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor at Breitbart News. Well, Russia and China have firmed up their No Limits Alliance. They frequently describe this as an unlimited partnership. Uh, President Vladimir Putin of Russia and the Chinese dictator Xi Jinping had a meeting in Moscow. They fawned over each other. They, They showered each other with compliments, declared each other the best of friends. China has, to this day, not criticized Russia for invading Ukraine, but it does claim that it's the only power on Earth that can possibly negotiate any kind of a peace deal because it supposedly is an impartial observer. Uh, That is laughable since the the Chinese are helping the Russians in a variety of ways as they prosecute this brutal war. And now their alliance is beginning to spread and to draw in other members of this rising axis of authoritarianism. Here with us to talk about it is Gerard Felitti, Senior Counsel with the Lawfare Project. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show, sir. Thank you so much, John. So, you know, the Russia-China alliance is bad news, but I think the Russia-China-Iran-Saudi Arabia alliance is worse news. And that looks like what's happening. The Biden administration has apparently decisively pushed the Saudis out of the American orbit. Now they're making overtures with China. They've just joined the uh, Shanghai Cooperative that China runs, a big economic organization, which is a pretty clear signal that they don't really feel tethered to American policy any longer. So this, this axis of tyranny is starting to show some real chops here. 
It is, and, and it's remarkable that American foreign policy has really caused this to happen. Uh, with Saudi Arabia, the moment we began pushing for more cooperation with Qatar and shifting forces there, that was uh, the beginning of the end of the Saudi alliance as we knew it, uh, pushing them more into the international orbit, that they found the Chinese as partners is not remarkable, but that they and Iran were able to sit down with China and agree to uh, to meaningful talks is really remarkable, and it shows how aggressive China has been in redefining its role in the international community. And you also see an opening here with Russia being isolated from much of the rest of the world. It's European oil contracts, null and void. So Russia is looking for customers, looking for supporters and backers. And that is something that an alliance can build off of. China comes in there, throws its protection and business. Russia still has customers in places like India, which is perpetually teetering on the edge between being a U.S. ally and moving more into that orbit. Should we be worried that this is laying the groundwork for possibly losing more American allies under the kind of foreign policy that we're running these days. We should be in two senses. One, Russia and China have always been in the same orbit. Russia has been the senior partner in this alliance when it came to spreading global communism and dictatorships, uh, but China the junior partner. Now we're seeing a reversal of roles as Russia is bogged down in Ukraine and they're seeing their military power laughed at by the rest of the world. Uh, China's asserting itself as the senior partner. It's no longer worried about Russia on its Western front and it can focus increasingly on the Asia Pacific theater where they're increasingly confronting American interests. So an alliance with Russia and China, Russia, yes, they, they now have an export market. They have an economic impetus to, to do this with China. Uh, but this is really all for the benefit of China. Russia, all they have is continued support from the only power that's left supporting them. I worry about this when I hear people talking about this policy with regard to Ukraine and how we're pouring titanic amounts of money and shipping huge amounts of military hardware to Ukraine. And Russia, of course, is taking a lot of losses, spending a lot of money and manpower there. And we're told that's okay because we're bleeding away the strength of Russia by doing this, you know, that that's good for the long term. But China is getting to watch its major rival and its junior partner bleed each other dry while they just sit back and enjoy the show. Like, you know, they're not really losing anything here. There's nothing but gain in it for China. And I feel like we're taking our eyes off the more dangerous adversary here. I, I think you're right about that. I think that this is doing no favors to the long-term power struggle that we will face with China, because China no longer has to worry about Russian military might. It no longer has to have as many forces on its Western borders. We're bleeding. We're helping Ukraine bleed Russia dry. But with Russia increasingly absent on the world stage or less of a military threat, China now has free reign to do more or less whatever it wants, subject only to our willpower to stop it. And that's also in question. If anything, the fact that we're supporting Ukraine should be helpful to Taiwan, Japan, Australia, the Philippines, to show that we do honor commitments to help our allies who are under siege. That is one of the upsides of continuing to support Ukraine. But on the flip side, the more we help Ukraine, the more likely we are to inevitably help the, the Chinese build up their power as Russia steps into a vacuum. Well, China long has had the goal of disarming sanctions. They hate the idea of human rights sanctions of anything of the sort. They don't like the United States using economic leverage, especially the power of the dollar in trade to sanction other countries. And it's long been an expressed goal of theirs to neutralize that system. And it seems like they're coming closer to that now that they've helped Russia evade a lot of the sanctions pressure leveled against it. And China and Russia are talking now about an organized campaign to dethrone the dollar as the worldwide currency and 
substitute their own currency and others for it. And if they can pull that off, that's going to be a, a crippling blow to our economy. I don't think most people here understand what happens to us on the day the dollar is no longer king. That, that's right. It's also worth remembering that China has no internal economy that is not dependent on foreign trade. They sell their products to the rest of the world. So they are worried about trade embargoes. They are worried about sanctions. They are worried about any of this being brought to bear on them. Just look at the pandemic. There were no sanctions against China, but because they shut down, the rest of the world, after a couple of years, was able to more or less move on without them. Uh, we were having our supplies met by, by India, by Indonesia, by other countries that were filling in the gap. And, and now that we've gone back to relying on China, we're, we're doing them a big service. But ultimately, that's the thing. China wants to destabilize the dollar and they want to have assurances that they continue selling their product abroad because without that, they have no economy. That, that's their biggest concern is worth to go their markets. That's also why we're seeing them increasingly active in Africa, in South America and across the world, buying ports, building infrastructure. They need these alliances to continue going their economy. There's an interesting development along those lines this week. The founder of Alibaba, Jack Ma, who had been dethroned, destroyed because he criticized the Communist Party a couple of years ago, driven into exile, he suddenly reappears in China, so to the shock of almost everyone, apparently at the invitation of the Chinese premier. And one of the reasons was that the premier is eager to send a message to the world that China's open for business again. We're never going to do lockdowns. We're never going to shut down your factories. And we wanted to make the Chinese business community feel a bit less frightened of the communists because they've been doing so many crackdowns and purges lately. So they're now turning on this charm offensive for international business. And it seems to me they wouldn't do that unless they felt a real danger that they were going to lose some of that business forever. I think that is also very much correct. With, with Jack Ma, it's fascinating to, to essentially try to guess whether it was more uh, incentives that brought him back to China or whether it was the threat of Chinese action against him. We know that the Chinese have agents throughout the world. They even rendition some of their, their citizens back to China. Uh, so we don't really know whether Jack Ma came willingly or under pressure. But you're absolutely right. This is about China putting on a charm initiative, showing that they are uh, the polite and elder statesmen on the diplomatic scene that their economy is thriving and can grow exponentially. It really is a trial offensive that many people are buying. And part of that in the U.S. is we have younger representatives in Congress who don't appreciate the danger that China has historically posed. They don't appreciate the dangers of communism or of a controlled economy, and they're willing to buy into this charm offensive. And that's also manifest in Africa, which you mentioned, where there's a duel for influence going on between the United States, the Western world, and China and Russia. And China is openly contemptuous of the Biden administration's efforts to win some support in Africa. The vice president, Kamala Harris, is over there right now. She's announcing these multi-million dollar, billion dollar initiatives that are supposed to support African business. And the Chinese are laughing and saying, we spent you know, $140 billion there over the last few years building infrastructure. You're crazy if you think you can win them away from us by I offer them a couple of handout programs. And it's not just handout programs. It's also what we're doing. China is building roads. They're building factories. They're building ports. We are offering them incentives to go green and not produce greenhouse gases, which, quite frankly, Africa doesn't care about. The developing world doesn't care about the environment more than they care about putting food on the plates of their citizens. So if China comes and builds their infrastructure and allows them to do that, it develops their national economy more. That's where they will be allied, not America, who comes in with promises but no cash. 
That's a, they said exactly that in the Chinese state media today, that almost literally word for word, that America just says things, but we have money and we build things. We build things that last. You know, we're making real deals with you. And also China offers all these things without strings attached in the sense that we do. The Chinese go to their client states and say, we're a rock solid authoritarian dictatorship. We don't have to do elections. We don't fluctuate. We have our, pr our priorities. And as long as you do business with us and give us what we want, we'll keep up our end of the deal. And meanwhile, the Western world, they're crazy. They're obsessed with human rights. They have elections. They blow in the wind. The last guy hates Africa. The next guy loves Africa. The guy after him might not love Africa. So, I mean, that's, that's a difficult message to counter in some of these dictatorships and some of these countries in developing world where, as you say, these are luxurious concepts to them. They're worried about feeding their people, not meeting some human rights standard. They're worried about feeding their people, and at the same time, when it comes to human rights, a lot of these African countries don't have that long-standing history of human rights uh, according to human rights. Uh, there, there have been many dictatorships and many uh, strict regimes and a lot of civil wars that are still ongoing on the continent, and China is happy to be involved with that because they, they like dictatorships, they like strife, they like supporting the winning side in the civil war where we are not getting involved. But there are always things that happen. That's the important thing for people to be that feels like the coming conflict in the century ahead for us is going to be the battle over stability. And what China and, and Russia, the axis of authoritarianism, are saying is that we're stable, we, we do business, and you can't really trust the Western world because democracy is inherently unstable. That is an argument we really don't want to lose. Gerard Felitti, Senior Counsel with the Lawfare Project, thank you for joining us today. I'm John Hayward, your guest host. We will be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. In December, LastPass, a popular app for managing passwords, suffered a security breach, potentially exposing millions of people's personal information. When a business created to protect passwords gets hacked, it's a reminder how vulnerable our sensitive information can be when stored in the cloud. And for businesses who need to protect data, security is a top concern. To help prevent security risks, the open directory platform provider JumpCloud recently introduced a password manager. Jump Clouds Antoine Jabara. Businesses cannot always rely on an offline solution as users need to share and access passwords across multiple devices, and cloud based options aren't ideal either. Jump Cloud Password Manager takes a hybrid approach, storing data on users' devices and seamlessly syncs user vaults to multiple devices in an end to end encrypted way. This addresses some of the limitations of cloud based systems and bridges the gap between convenience and security. To learn more, visit jumpcloud.com. Vitamin B12 is important for supporting not only our metabolism, but also our energy levels. Our brain and our nerves need certain vitamins like B12 in order to function properly. Even if you're eating all the healthy foods like fruits and vegetables and getting you know great sources of protein, it's sometimes the case that you can become deficient in one or more nutrient, and that's where supplements can be helpful. So if you wanna support your B12 levels, Jaro's Methyl B12 is a great supplement to consider to optimize your B12 levels. This type of B12 is recognized by the body, so it's delivered to your cells more efficiently. It's also been shown that it is a great way to make sure that you're getting a highly absorbed form of vitamin B12 and one that's gonna be retained better than other types of B12. You can learn more at jaro.com. If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? 
by their clothes, their age, the way they speak? Would you notice a 16-year-old boy who got got his first job, not for extra spending money, but to help feed his little sisters? Or a mother who's in between jobs and sometimes goes to bed hungry so her kids can have dinner? Or a 14-year-old girl who signs up to every after-school activity not to make friends, but just to get something to eat? Or a retiree who fell ill and had to choose between getting medicine or groceries? I am the one in eight Americans who struggle with hunger. People you pass by every day but never knew were hungry. I am hunger in America. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 Food Bank Strong, and the Ad Council. My name is Judy Teeter, and I'm the mother of three boys. My youngest, Joe, was a great kid. He loved sports, music, and his youth group. One day, Joe asked me to drive him to an after-school event, which was about a mile from our home. I was driving through a green light when a car in cross-traffic ran a red light and drove right into the side of our car, killing Joe. The driver was talking on her phone, so she never even saw the red light. She was so absorbed in her phone call. Before the crash, I didn't realize just talking on a cell phone while driving was so dangerous. Now it's something I think about every day. According to the National Safety Council, about one in four car crashes involves a cell phone. Hands-free is no safer. When you're behind the wheel, put away your phone. For Joe and for the thousands of needless deaths every year. Remember, there is no safe way to talk on a cell phone while driving. Find out more at nsc.org slash callskill. I'm Ben Affleck, and I want to thank you for joining me and supporting Paralyzed Veterans of America. Our vets need you. I'm a quadriplegic. I'm definitely at risk with my diminished lung capacity. I have MS. I'm in a wheelchair, and I can't leave the house because I have a compromised immune system. I'm very concerned about would there be a bed for me? Would there be a ventilator for me? Would I be able to survive something? It's, it's just heavy. You know, it's, it's a heavy... It's a heavy moment. This is a war. This really is. Our veterans fought for us. Let's fight for them. I am so grateful for the PVA. They're making sure that we have all of the food and supplies that we need right now. We all got to help each other right now. We can't get through this by ourselves. It's with profound gratitude that you're going to be saving our lives. To find out how you can help, please go to helppva.org. That's H-E-L-P-P-V-A.org. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News. You can find my writing at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. We all know that inflation has been chewing away at household income quite viciously ever since the election of President Joe Biden. It's been getting worse and worse. Occasionally, it stops getting worse and just stays bad, and then it starts getting worse again. But it's not looking good for American household income after a couple years of these policies. Biden's energy policy alone have been calculated to have cost U.S. households over $2,300 apiece since 2021. That is a lot of lost income. And yet, looking at the outcome in the midterm elections, an observer might be tempted to say it hasn't had that much of an impact on people's voting habits. They, They seem like they're getting used to it. Here with us to talk about it is Linnea Lucan, Research Fellow at the Heartland Institute. Welcome to The Alan Nathan Show. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on. 
So $2,300 for energy policies. I've seen $8,000 to $9,000 in inflation for other things uh, being hit with American households. You know, we're up over 10, 11 grand since Biden got elected in what really amounts to tax increases when you get right down to it. They're just the stealthiest, most indirect, most inefficient tax increases possible, but that's what they are. And yet uh, the, the American public didn't really rise up and vote against us in a big way in the midterms. What's happening here? Well, for one, it's been somewhat gradual, although it's been uh, quite a bit quicker than um, it has been in previous years where we've had some bad energy policy like under Obama. Um, You know, we've seen an incredible increase over the past year, especially in in the areas of, you know, say, home heating oil prices increased by 88 percent just since Biden entered office. And, you know, his policies are intentional. But I think that the reason why people aren't maybe reacting right away is that the media has put their entire, you know, full force behind trying to blame energy costs on, say, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, They try to, you know, kind of pass the buck every chance that they get. But the truth is that even accounting for the spike last summer because of the Ukraine war, um, Prices were going up quite a bit even before then. I mean, the year or just a few months before the uh, Russians invaded Ukraine, um, Heartland calculated that Biden had already cost households a thousand dollars in excess energy spending. So um, I think that there's been quite a bit of a diversion tactic, but it's not going to last. It's not going to help them for long. Well, that's interesting. It, up until now, it's been gas prices, you know, until I think this economic cycle that were really the harbinger of public discontent. That's what got people in the wallet. That's what made people mad. When the price at the pump went up, they could handle a lot of inflation and other things as long as it was gradual. But as soon as the pump prices started skyrocketing, they'd get ornery, and the media and the Democrats never were quite able to talk them out of being mad. They tried, but people just said, I can't stand this. $4 gas, this is incredible. It's killing my whole life. That's, that was the pressure release valve. And this time, as you say, maybe they've succeeded in deflecting blame. We're all familiar with the old shell game now. Whenever the price of the pump goes up, it's Vladimir Putin's fault. Whenever it goes down, thank you, Joe Biden. You know, that's the game they've been playing for years. And maybe that's just worked enough to diffuse public anger. Or maybe with inflation going up so much across the board, gas prices don't stick out quite as much as a signal of pain to the public. Right. And and inflation has been terrible, but we really can't underestimate the impact that fuel prices have had on other goods and services. Right. So, for example, over the last um, last year alone, I think farmers were paying somewhere between 200 and 300 percent more on fertilizer costs. And that's going to have a significant downstream effect on your grocery prices which in the last couple months, people have been really starting to talk about that, hitting their wallet pretty badly. Um, You know, and it's not like farmers are picking their crops by hand right now. You know, uh, those big tractors run on diesel. Those prices have been going up. So it really, energy is the bedrock of the entire economy. So when you have a Biden administration that is actively hostile towards domestic energy production, you are going to feel it. 
And, you know, food is obviously something very sensitive to fuel prices because food requires constant shipment and transportation more than most other products. And yeah. when fuel goes up, that, that all just gets cooked right into the, the price of your food. I notice another difference with the Biden years that I think is interesting is that back during the, the Biden years when gas prices were going up and inflation overall, you know, wasn't quite as bad, you also had that sense that the middle class and small businesses were so important. That was a huge part of the 2012 campaign. Everybody on both sides was talking about the little guy, the small businessman. But after the pandemic, the small businessman just doesn't matter anymore. They don't talk about him. Small businesses are never a topic of conversation in Washington. The media doesn't care about them. And they're one of the groups that is most sensitive to energy price increases. They get hit the hardest when, when gas bills go up, fuel, heating, electricity. But now that they're not really on the political chessboard anymore, it seems like a major part of criticism there has been lost. Right. And, you know, as you said, Biden campaigned on being the, you know, blue collar area candidate who, you know, was sticking up for the for the union jobs and all of that. Well, the unions are pretty ticked off at Biden right now for a lot of his opposition to uh, pipelines and coal production, um, all sorts of energy related subjects. He has been uh, kind of saying one thing to them and then going ahead and uh, voting against policies that would help them out. So it's um, it's all been basically a front this entire time to sneak in these pretty extreme radical policies uh, against domestic energy and, and frankly against small businesses because when prices are this bad, they can't keep their doors open. But like you said, during the pandemic, you know, where could you go? You could go to Walmart, you could go to Target, um, but the mom and pops were forced to shut down. So this is just more of the same. Right. They, they either were killed off by the pandemic as businesses or they were so reduced in importance politically that they're just not part of the conversation anymore. And this has foreign policy ramifications, too. I've heard uh, people say that it would be nice if we were producing energy and our allies were buying it from us. But instead, we have an energy policy that basically forces them to buy energy from our enemies. And our enemies are profiting enormously from that and realigning politics as we see Saudi Arabia drifting into China's orbit now away from the United States. That, that has grim implications for the decades to come. Right. The first, this is the most incredible part of this energy policy and the hypocrisy here. The first day that Biden was in office, he canceled the Keystone XL pipeline. In, in the days following, he withdrew his support from an East Med pipeline. That was a joint Israel, Greece, and a couple other countries uh, project that was going to deliver oil to um, Europe. And he put his support behind and withdrew the um, barriers that were holding up Nord Stream 2 so that Russia could complete that pipeline. It is absolutely incredible. It it is, and it's reshaping the world all around us, and that's going to play out for decades to come ahead of us. Linnea Lucan, Research Fellow at the Heartland Institute, thank you for joining us today. I'm John Hayward, your guest host, sitting in for Alan while he's on assignment. Thank you very much for joining us on this hour of The Alan Nathan Show. 
The opinions you hear on the Main Street Radio Network are those of the host, callers, and guests, and not necessarily those of the station, Main Street Radio Network, its management, or advertisers. The information on the Main Street Radio Network does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or securities. So please, consult a professional before investing. If you have any questions or comments about Main Street Radio Network, contact us at 703-719-0433 or at our website, MainStreetRadioNetwork.com.